You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This week, we're going to talk to Grace Olmstead. She's a journalist who focuses on farming, localism, and family. Her writing has been published in the American Conservative, the New York Times, Washington Post, uh, National Review, among many other places. She's a native of rural Idaho, now lives outside of Washington, D.C. with her husband. And I know this is not correct because it's now three children. It says two children on the back of this great book. The book is called Uprooted, The Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. It comes out tomorrow. Gracie Olmstead, welcome to uh, the Strong Towns podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I am a huge fan of both the podcast and Strong Towns. Thank you. That's very kind. Well, I'm a huge fan of yours. Let's start with the back of the book. You're going to have to edit this now because it does say two children. (laughs) I know how long sometimes it can take in the publishing process. Congratulations on child number three. Thank you. We actually did change that in the copy editing cycle. I think you've got an early. I got an early copy. Early copy. Yeah. So I, I actually remember we were talking about the back cover and I looked at it and I said, oh my gosh, guys, we have to change that. When the book comes out, I'm going to have three babies. (laughs) How beautiful. It's amazing because writing a book with daughters was a huge challenge for me, but mine were older. (laughs) You know, mine mine actually were somewhat uh, more independent and would go to bed by themselves for the most part. (laughs) And, And that you've done this Herculean effort while gestating a child completely (laughs) and raising two others. So uh, you have Uh, huge amounts of admiration for me. Oh, Uh, thank you. It had its moments. I was thinking about, you know, the book coming out and realizing that I had potty trained one child, nursed two, and been pregnant with and given birth to a child in the process of this book being written and edited. Those things can take a lot of time and energy and emotion out of you. And so uh, writing a book on top of it was not easy, but I, I am very happy to say it can be done. And I but, hope it'll encourage other women out there that that they can do it too. <laughs> it, it, it may not important. be, you know, John Steinbeck's, you know, Pulitzer Prize winning work, but it is it is a book and it's finished. <laughs> okay. Steinbeck is my favorite American author. This is beautiful writing. I really find your style of writing to be beautiful. And it wasn't what I wanted to focus on in this interview, but I, I just wanted to say, I mean, your writing is gorgeous. I mean, the words just really hit me in a lot of ways. So it's very beautiful. Thank you. Can I, I want to talk about your book because it's about your experience, but it felt so personal to me. I wanted mm-hmm. to start in a personal place. My youngest is 14. I have two daughters as well. My oldest is 16 and my youngest just turned 14 last week. And she is in that phase where you know, she's dealing with teenage angst, but she's still young enough to where she's very idealistic about the world. She's starting to kind of grasp that the world is kind of a cruel place sometimes, but there's beauty in it. She is on this kick for the last few months and it's breaking her dad's heart where all she wants to do is leave Brainerd. Mm -hmm. Uh, She said, when I'm 18, I'm out of here. I'm never coming back. I'm leaving. I'm going as far away as I can. When I go to college, it will not be in any state 
even touching Minnesota. It's got to be at least two or three states away. (laughs) I am leaving. I am going away. I read your book and I kept thinking about Stella and her relationship with her place. What was life like for you as a young woman in that age, that kind of, you know, I'm, I'm not old enough yet to be on my own, but I can see it coming. What was that like for you in Emmett, in, in a smaller town, kind of recognizing that you needed to leave, but you also mm-hmm. had these things prompting you to stay? Yeah. I grew up in Fruitland, Fruitland, which is an orchard town, you know, right next to Emmett. So our family homesteaded there and lived there up until my grandparents. And then after that kind of moved just next door. So I always add that just so that people, you know, know that it is the same farm community, but it's, I didn't grow up in Emmett in case anyone from Emmett is like, what is she talking about? She didn't go to school here. I have the same thing. um, I grew up in Baxter and I'm from Brainerd and Baxter is like a thousand people on the outskirts of Brainerd. But if you say Brainerd, no, you really weren't. You were from Baxter. (laughs) Exactly. But well, so, you know, growing up in that area, having family there that had lived there since the 1880s, 1870s, you were always really known by your family. And, you know, as a a young girl, I was very, very nerdy, very bookish, and I loved being home. I loved having that be my base. But the older I got, the more I started to hear those voices kind of filtering through, but you got to become your own person and do your own thing. And if you're smart, then you belong in a much more cosmopolitan environment. I think I started to get slightly irked by the fact that, you know, if I was out and about, I was known as Wally's granddaughter or Rick's daughter. You know, I was known by my last name or by the names of the people who'd come before me much more than by my own name. And I I had that feeling, which I think is very understandable and often good that young people have, which is like, well, how do I find out who I am in this environment? How do I kind of define my own self when my world is so much defined by other people? So that plus probably the bookishness pushed me toward college on the East Coast and and settling out here. But it's interesting how now as an adult looking back, I realize what a gift that was because most people in America today are incredibly lonely. They don't you know, necessarily live right next to their family or live in a place where their families lived for generations. They don't have that ability of going out the door, walking into a coffee shop, and immediately having 10 people recognize them and ask how, how their family is doing. I remember one time growing up, my, my little brother got very sick and was in the hospital over Christmas. My, at the time, fiance and I went home and we just dropped in the local coffee shop to grab some things. And immediately, like five people were there asking how my brother was, you know, what had they heard from the doctor, when and whether we'd be home. You know, the church was bringing food and dropping by the hospital. It was, it was that sort of intense community connection. But when you're young, you know, a lot of that can feel just like the background of, of your life. You know, it's like a fish in water. You don't necessarily feel or understand the blessing of that. What you see and feel is perhaps more of the, the things that annoy you. And then also that sense of, I want to define myself because you're at that age where that's very important. So yeah, it was, it was an interesting journey in that sense, I think. And I've, I've only realized more as an adult how it's it may have felt like a curse at a time, but what a blessing it is to to be known by your last name and for that to have a good meaning because not all people have that. Right. I know there were many times growing up for me where 
it was cool to see my grandfather's name on the the plaque at the back of the church as being like one of the people who donated and helped make it happen. And then also knowing that, you know, I had a lot of uncles and, and very close relatives who were in trouble with the law. And I remember opening the newspaper going, okay, is this going to be a good day or a bad day? <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Part yeah. of small town life. I want to ask you about when you left. And again, not to make this personal, but you, this book is so personal to me. I, I felt really a deep connection to it. There was a sense, I know when I left home and went to college, that on one hand, I had like knowledge that other people didn't. I mean, I could change the oil on a car. I could butcher a chicken. Things like people like that I met, like had no clue like how to do like very practical things. But I also felt like they had a common knowledge and a common understanding of the world that I just didn't. And it almost made me feel like an imposter to a degree. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about your experience of leaving a small town and ending up in a place that the term is more cosmopolitan or is more going to have a broader mix of people and, and what that transition or what that feeling is like for someone going through that, what it was like for you? It is interesting, I think, because I was such a bookworm as a as a girl. I, I moved into an environment where I had a lot of very natural kindred spirits. In some ways, I felt like I belonged more <laughs> than I had at home. Not that there weren't bookworms back in Idaho, but just that our community was populated by people who worked with their hands, who had a very, very practical relationship with, with the earth and with their communities. And the emphasis perhaps on the classical liberal arts or, or more of, you know, an education steeped in these old 18th century works of literature. It was not as emphasized. And that was just where my heart had been gravitating for a while. So in some ways, I, I felt a lot of kinship that I hadn't had before. On the other hand, it is interesting how when you're hanging out with someone who grew up perhaps in Chicago or Los Angeles, and you talk about preserving peaches every August or the evenings you would spend with your grandpa shucking corn, those are things that they just don't have any sort of context for. It's not something that existed. And so I realized even my ability to live seasonally was, and to have that relationship between the earth and what we ate was a very, very radical and unfamiliar thing to a lot of people. It's funny how a friend of mine who grew up in California, as she was reading the draft of the book I sent her realized that, you know, she had never really had to make the connection as a child between the meat that she ate and the meat that came from an actual animal that right. lived and breathed somewhere. And she wants her daughters to have more of that now and to understand that this is, this is an actual animal that was killed in order for us to have food. But, you know, growing up in a context in which agriculture is not present, it was never something she really had to think about. And there was that disconnect that that was very strong. One of my favorite memories of this actually was I was helping some friends who own a winery out here prune a vineyard. Uh, it was February of last year, right before everything <laughs> went crazy. But there was a, a girl who was helping who was from Chicago and she was so sweet and wonderful, but it was funny because at one point she turned to me and said, this feels so grapes of wrath to me. <laughs> and I just, I just had to die laughing because I was like, hey, yeah. well, I, I feel like this is, this is actually pretty easy, pretty yeah. nice. <laughs> yeah. Like that was a lot tougher than, right. 
start from a Steinbeck kind of dystopian uh-huh. uh, relationship with the earth as you could get, especially since we got to drink some wonderful rosé once we were done. Yeah, <laughs> this anyways, is kind of wholesome just, life. Yeah, but obviously, you know, something like that, a chore that you work at on the land, getting your hands dirty, something that requires a lot of skill and time was just very much embedded in my childhood. And I saw so many people who came before me live out those rhythms on a daily basis. And so they didn't feel foreign or strange to me. And whenever I get to relive them through my garden or something like that, I'm I'm so happy to be in that rhythm again. The gardening, I hated as a kid being told, go out and do your share of the weeding every day. And now I have a garden and, and love it. And I kind of feel like I was drawn in the same way. Mm. Let me ask you this, because I, I wrote this as two kind of opposite questions. And I thought like, oh, I'm not trying to trick Gracie, but I wanted to get you to answer that question about leaving, because there's also this part of being gone. You talk in the book a little bit about stickers versus boomers. You're quoting someone and have this conversation about people who stick and invest and people who come and kind of take. And, and I wonder if you struggle with feeling like a little bit like a boomer now, like having left and being gone. And, and I, I will say that even having come back, I feel a little bit isolated from the people around me too, because my livelihood, my income, my life, my energy is actually not as much grounded here as it is in, mm. in, in other places. What is that tension like for you? Yeah. So Wallace Stegner, you know, is this incredible novelist and essayist who put forth this idea of stickers and boomers, the ones who, you know, move to a place and stay there and invest in it and make it healthy. And the people who, in his words, pillage and leave, either because they were pillagers themselves or they worked for pillagers. And, you know, our history is one in which we see that pattern kind of going over and over throughout the nation, but especially in the West it's an area of the United States that's experienced so many boom and bust cycles, it seems like. But for me, as I was thinking about those two categories of of American, I saw how all of my ancestors had been stickers. You know, everyone I'm related to really, for the most part, is still in Idaho, and most of them within probably a 40-minute drive of each other, which is pretty remarkable. And yet I'm this one who left and moved to the other side of the United States. And it's interesting how their life and the way that they lived inspires the way I live now, the garden that I have, the ways I've tried to get involved with my local community. But I think there is this question I've always asked myself, especially since encountering Wendell Berry's work of if a lot of the goodness I've received in my own life is the result of the stickers who came before me then do I owe something to them, to the past and to the place where I grew up to invest in the next generation in that soil to make sure that they also have opportunities and that the both the soil and the economy and the culture of the place isn't you know depleted by loss, basically, in my lifetime. Because a lot of a lot of rural areas have been severely depleted by various forms of loss and that always has an, an influence and an impact on the on the future. So in terms of whether I'm a boomer now, I like to hope that I'm what I talk about at the end of the book is a transplant, someone who's, you know, moved to a new piece of soil and is just really rooting themselves down there as best they can. But I would love to go back home and live in Idaho again at some point. And I've wondered what that transition would be like and whether I would feel as if it was 
difficult to get replanted, <laughs> you know, after having been gone for, gosh, over a decade now, you know. Right. Yeah. There's this personification of the West. It's almost like a caricature of like the rugged individualist living out on their own, free from entanglements, free from, you know, the the requirements to to do this or that. And and of course, historically that's ridiculous. And I, I love how your book is infused with these stories of people working together in community with each other and in commune with each other in many ways. Yet there does seem to be a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy to that kind of imposed narrative. Can you talk a little bit about the tension of, I think Deneen calls it like the self-making self and this American ideal of, of the individual above all else. And this kind of what makes a place like Emmett or a small town actually work and be successful for the people that are there? Mm -hmm. It's such an important question. I think Idaho and, and maybe some other rural states as well are very much defined by this, this idea of the maverick, I think is kind of how I talk about it. And my great grandfather, who we, we called grandpa dad, was someone who really personified a lot of the various maverick sensibilities. And the best way I know to describe it, as I saw it, was just that, you know, there was always this, this underlying attitude of we have to be able to take care of ourselves by ourselves, you know. And to some extent, in a rural area, that might be necessary in the sense that you might be isolated enough that you have to be able to, you know, defend yourself when called upon to do so. You might have to make sure the coyotes stay out of the chickens, whatever it is. There's various aspects of an isolated rural life that forces self-sufficiency on you. I remember said, people being people in college being appalled by the notion that we would have a loaded shotgun behind <laughs> the door. Yeah. And I'm like, of course you have a loaded shotgun behind the door. Like where else would you put your <laughs> well, you don't you don't necessarily call the police to come take care of, you know, <laughs> the coyotes breaking into the right. chicken. So you've got to have your own mechanism to <laughs> prevent against that. But yeah, so it, it's just a different reality. I think it can cultivate a different type of person. But when you look at the history of the West, those who were able to build flourishing communities we're always doing so within the context of extreme neighborliness, extreme mutual supportive systems. The economy was always built up around local industry, local jobs. And when it came to farmers in particular, you always saw people working hard to support each other. No one was pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. You know, you always had someone giving someone else a hand. And in my great grandfather's case, getting farming started in the Great Depression, required a whole host of people, neighbors, family members, etc., lending him things, giving him things, helping him with the land payments, helping him get the equipment that he needed. And so what I saw over and over again was that, you know, there is this narrative of we are self-sufficient, we are the American individual, um, a very libertarian sort of state and area. But when you look at the actual patterns that gave rise to the greatest amount of local flourishing, they always involved extreme neighborliness. And it reminded me of an Alexis de Tocqueville quote in which he talks about how the only thing that would keep Americans from kind of falling into a destructive pattern of individualism and isolation would be small local community neighborliness and the sort of, you know, associations that would get together at that local level 
in inspiring them to what he called a long habit of small kindnesses of indebtedness that would then prevent us from becoming extremely isolated and atomized. And that's what I saw in the history of this area. I think as we lose that, as we lose the associations, as we lose the local industry clusters, like a lot of those things come under pressure and do begin to fragment and fall apart, which is also maybe a plug to read Tim Carney's book, Alienated America, because it gets into that as well. (laughs) Yeah. You use the word indebtedness just there. And I feel like there's there's this reciprocal indebtedness that I think some people see as oppressive because it, it can be constraining, but some people see it as, as liberating as well, because I, I do have this neighbor to call upon. I owe them, they owe me. We, we have, you know, kind of our own backstop here in a sense. How do you look at that indebtedness? The next question I want to ask you is kind of a quasi-political question. But to me, this seems a little bit about kind of where our our national political conversation is, you know, is our indebtedness to the state and to the system that has been set up and, or is our debt indebtedness to our neighbor, to other people or or to both or like, where is that, you know, line? And to Mm -hmm. me, it seems like the way you describe your hometown and the area you grew up in and the people that were there is that there is this, to use your word, indebtedness that kind of you're born into that you do kind of have to fulfill to the people around you. Is, is that a fair way to, to categorize it? Yeah, I mean, I would say so. I think John Eichert, who's a rural economist, who's done wonderful work, he talks about this idea of a gift economy. Robin Walkimer talks about it also in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, that Oftentimes in a lot of rural communities or or communities reliant upon the land, there's a system of economics that goes beyond the exchange of money that undergirds the health of these places. And, And it's entirely reliant upon the various forms of indebtedness that people have to one another and the various forms of service that are not always through, you know, the exchange of dollars and cents, but oftentimes are a bartering system a series of small kindnesses, as Tocqueville talks about, things that build up social capital and trust over time and lead to a sense of of safety and well-being and really undergird the health of those communities. Now, that all used to exist. I think in, in a lot of places, it still does exist, but it's, it's definitely under a lot of strain and pressure. And um, some of that will have to do, of course, with the fact that these communities are hollowed out. There's probably, in a lot of places, you're seeing a lot of more poverty. And so, People don't always have the the mental, emotional, or, or the physical ability to give in the way that perhaps they were able to before. Although it is worth noting that I think in a lot of poor places, gift economies become even more necessary for, for well-being. But I definitely think that what you would have seen in my grandfather and my great-grandfather's day is not as accessible to a young person today. That was something I was grappling with and thinking about a lot as I was working on the book. But when you think about what these communities built over the course of generations, it was this sense that, you know, the Howards have taken care of us. So now if the Howards need something, we're going to help them and right. vice versa. And I even talked to a farmer on on the bench, which is the name for the Mesa outside of Emmett, where my grandfather and great grandfather farmed. And they had just finished harvesting all of a farmer's crops because he had cancer and couldn't 
couldn't do it all himself. And so all the local farmers got together and did it for him. And they did it because a, that's what they do. You know, it's, it's a tradition. It's a custom that's been built up over time, but also they knew he would do it for them. It's the gift economy being worked out in action. And so it's just a powerful and beautiful thing to begin to see that and the, the legacy that that has. I want to get to something I think is going to be difficult, but I find this so beautiful. I kind of want to lean into it a little bit because you say in the book a couple of times you went and you introduced yourself and you send an email. I'm, I'm Gracie Olmstead and no one paid any attention. And then you said, I'm Willie's granddaughter. And everyone's like, oh yeah, like, of course, like, come on <laughs> in. I think of that as like a, a very beautiful thing. I know I saw that too. It was like, I'm Charles Marone. I'm actually Charles Marone Jr. And so, you know, I was Chucky to everybody and, and it's like, oh yeah, Chucky, I know him. You're Chuck's kid. And you know, da, 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 da. It opens all these doors for you because there are these reciprocal agreements in place that are, you know, kind of unwritten and just understood. I want to put a placeholder on that as a beautiful thing, because I feel like that is part of why I live here and it is part of the place. But there's a side to that too, that is also exclusive. Like if you're not from this place, it's harder to break in. If you are not fitting in here, or if you are different in some way, it's a little bit harder to fit in. I want to ask you about that, but I also want to ask you about that in like terms of the exploitation of that reality when it comes to our national discourse. Because I do recognize, and I feel like you in the book really get into how deeply these places are struggling. Sarah Smarsh in her book, you know, which I want to ask you about in a minute, gets into that, I think, in a more, even more strident way about just how painful this is at times to live in these places that are being denuded and hollowed out and, and, and mm-hmm. stuff. How much loss is there in kind of losing that friendship economy or that that communal part? And how how does that relate to what I see as some of like the exploitation in a political sense of people's fears in, in small town? Do, do you see that? Is that how you look at it? Or is there a different way to, to look at this? Are you saying in terms of people in those towns feeling kind of alienated or exploited by outside forces and, and kind of insulating themselves? Well, let me put it like this. And we we tend to stay like far, far away from politics on this show, but I will say it in this way. And I think this comes a lot from Tim Carney's book where, mm-hmm. you know, you look at like the Trump phenomena or, or you look at some of the, uh, you know, the related kind of political conversations that have gone on. And it very much taps into this feeling of the fact that everybody seems to be against you and your world is kind of falling apart. And at the same time, it's falling apart. The people whose world seems to be expanding and growing and seem to have power are calling you racist and calling you, you know, all these things that you don't feel like you are, but yet you kind of live in a place where the insider is like the transaction. It's the currency, right? Mm -hmm. How do we work through that tension? Because I, I do see it here. My daughter going to school is going to be in a lot better position than the immigrant family who's moved to the community whose kid is going to school, merely because of the fact that half the teachers of the school I went to school with, like they were Mm -hmm. peers of mine, like they know my kid, they're going to call me, they're going to look after my kid. This tension is different in a small town than in a big city. How do we navigate like the next generation of what 
small town life looks like? And I realize that's a huge question. It's such an important question though. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I, I tried to talk about a little bit in the book is just that there is a pattern of systemic racism in the history of Idaho and why it looks the way it, it does today, which is currently over 90% white. Right. And I had not really fully realized all of the policies and institutional pressures that were put on immigrants or people of color when they tried to move into Idaho until I started working on research for the book. Phil Chrisman in, in his book, Midwest Futures, talks about that kind of process of realization that you can have when you start to look at the history of your state and you say, oh, there's a reason we look the way we do. And it's and it's not good. <laughs> it's a horrible moment of, of realization. And you begin to see the fact that all of those things that were a blessing to you could have been exclusive to people who were left on the outside. And I feel like we really need to have a hard conversation in rural America about what does it look like to be hospitable, for one, to newcomers and to not shut them out just because they look different or sound different or come from a more liberal state, but to truly be a place where we welcome the outsider and the immigrants and the people who look different from us, because not only will that lead to a more healthy, diverse community, but it's truly going to be essential for some of these places to survive. They have to start dealing with this and with their histories and their legacies and, and the impact that's had on their present and could have on their future. But in addition to all of that, I think there can be some denial in these communities, a decision not to talk about or to grapple with that past because it is in the past. But as you said, because we grow social capital over generations, you know, and the, the kids whose parents were able to move in or, you know, let's say great, 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 great grandparents in my case were able to move in in the 1880s. You know, we walk around the community with a blessedness born of those ties that has been built up for us that we did not earn. And that was not given to other kids whose great, great, great grandparents tried to move into here. So that's that really does show you how racism in our past in these rural areas can continue to have just a horribly toxic legacy all the way into the present moment. It's such a difficult thing to talk about. And I know that as someone who is white and very privileged in how I grew up, I don't even understand the full impact of it, but I wanted to bring as much attention to it as I could in order to begin to have those conversations. I also see how when you look at how Idaho's changing and how it's growing, there is immense opportunity to begin to fight off or to repudiate a lot of that and to do something different with our future. And I think that's a really promising thing. And I think it's sad that oftentimes as the state grows, the potential for those conversations gets lost because we have lots of disagreements about how growth is happening and which maybe we can talk about <laughs> in this conversation. But yeah, and I would say too, in terms of how my community or how this community is hurting versus others, Idaho is growing, which it's it's very lucky to be a rural area that is growing fast and, and growing very, very well, especially around the Boise area. And there's plenty of agricultural areas in rural states that don't have that new influx of people. The reason that I wanted to write about this area was because it was my own, but it was funny, even as I was writing it, I was thinking, you know, this won't be Hillbilly Elegy or Heartland or these other books, because I'm writing about a place that's very complicated 
in terms of how it's both struggling and doing well at the same time. And there was a part of me that was like, ah, I wonder if people will like this story less because it doesn't hand them, you know, an easy picture of look at this town, it's being hollowed out and, you know, everyone's, <laughs> you know, struggling with the opioid addictions or whatever. But it's it's a true story and it's a it's a complicated one. And I think it's important that our stories about rural America are complicated and nuanced because it's it's a huge swath of very complicated different regions. And so alongside the stories that show the worst of the worst that's happening, I think we need stories like this one, hopefully, that is showing something that's just not as easy to categorize. You write a little bit about some of the newer people that have moved to the community doing farming and how their farming practices are different in a sense than the people who have been there for a while. And their their farming practices have kind of you know, the, the people who have been here a long time, their practices have evolved along with this kind of corporate farming economy. And now all of a sudden to have new players in the system who are, you know, radically different, whether it's an organic farm or whether it's, I, I think the one that I found the most interesting was the people who were doing the uh, the festivals and the the triathlon and the you know let's let's have <laughs> let's make our farm into like a destination outside of Boise. You can see where that there would be a market for that, and you could do that. Do you look at this as the past and the future? Do you look at this as two different kind of ways of of farming that can coexist? Is there a tension there? Do they complement each other? Is this a path forward for some of the people who have been there before? How do you look at these, what I'm just going to call like, you know, the the up and comers, the newcomers, the, the people who are trying to do something new and adapt to the, to the people who have been there for a long time? It's really interesting. I think there are definitely some people in the community who are probably, you know, very much rooted in it and yet are doing things very different. Susan Dill and her husband, Peter, you know, are, are a couple that I talk about who are running a, a pasture-raised beef operation outside of town. And she's a native of Emmett. You know, he, she left to go to college in Seattle, met her husband there. So she's a returner. She's someone who kind of left and came back. But they're doing something very different from the norm as a couple who have a lot of roots in that community. But I do think that sometimes when you live in a place where things have just been done a certain way for a very long period of time, it can be hard to break out of that. Uh, there's a couple I talked to in the book who are much younger and they're out on the bench. They actually are living in my great grandpa's house. And I was talking to them about agritourism and some of the stuff I see out in Virginia. And it was just funny how to them it was very foreign. It's like, can you imagine charging people entry to come just to set foot on your farm and then charging them to pick apples in your orchard. Yeah. You know, but that, <laughs> that happens in Virginia all the time. It's like you pay $20 to get on the farm and then you pay another, you know, $4.99 a pound to pick your own apples and to pet some goats along the way. And it, it, you could kind of see on their faces, the incredulity, like, really? You've got to be but joking, at the right? Time, <laughs> I, it was funny talking to them. They were like, well, it would be cool to, you know, maybe start doing some corn mazes or, you know, some, some things like that, some festival activities, basically breaking into agritourism. And I think the funny thing about agritourism 
is that you can't market it to people who actually live in a farm town, usually, right? Because you live in agritourism. That's that's what you live, eat, and breathe. You have to wait for a city population to be close enough nearby and enough separated from that reality for it to then be turned into some sort of destination event. And what I think is happening is Emmett's beginning to realize, oh, there's this new population of people who have no ties to the farm, no ties to agriculture, who might just want to come hang out on our farm for a day. And that's just a kind of a new reality that I think takes a while to then turn into a marketable possibility. But Lance Phillips, who owns the orchard you're talking about, he grew up in Washington. And so, you know, in orchard orchard country there, and he's just naturally an entrepreneur. And so I think he's seen the opportunities for agritourism and he's really capitalized on them. And, and I think he's right that a lot of farmers, if they want to survive, they need to be bringing in additional sources of income. And this is one of the, one of the easiest ways to do it if you're next to an urban center like Boise. I remember when we got our first Walmart here, we now have had our second Walmart. We still have one, but it's a, an upgrade on the old one. The old one was, but was abandoned. It seemed to me at the time, like I was very excited because we used to have to drive an hour plus to get shoes and, uh, you know, to buy our school clothes and that kind of thing. When I look at particularly Western cities, there's ones that are clearly extractive. If you look at like a mining community or, a, you know, some of the, the oil towns in, in North Dakota, they're, you know, purely extractive. Like everybody's there doing a job. The money leaves as quickly as possible. But it did seem like the model for the agricultural small town was more regenerative. One where you were, in a sense, taking care of yourself and then selling your surplus out would be like the ideal model. That whole agribusiness thing has changed that. I want to read a quote from your book because I, I feel like this captures a lot of what has gone on in a very short thing. You're, you're quoting someone else. Here's the quote. Because farmers and other rural workers make less money, they also spend less money in their communities, creating a ripple effect that negatively impacts other local businesses. As a result, rural communities are hollowing out. Young people are leaving in droves and the folks left behind are struggling to make ends meet. It feels like part of what has happened in Emmett, part of what has happened in Brainerd and to the cities that are around me here in, in rural Minnesota is that the economy has become like more extractive. Even the parts that used to be regenerative where the money would pass around the communities are now, and I think we can think of Walmart as like an example of this, the, the whole business model of Walmart is to sell us stuff and take money out of the community kind of quickly as possible and, and it vanishes. Can you talk a little bit of, about that? I guess I'm wondering from you too, what you think the possibilities are of shifting that a little bit? It seems very idealistic to think that my kid's going to have an iPhone and that iPhone's not going to be built in Brainerd. Like I've fully accepted that, <laughs> you know, so I'm not like naive to think that somehow we're going to manufacture our own, you know, technology here, but it does seem like there is some type of balancing act that we can do that, that we're not doing well today in right. my place, in your place. What does this look like to you? You know, Michael Pollan wrote a great piece for the Washington Post just a few weeks ago about how the concentration on our food system has made it incredibly efficient, but it hasn't made it very resilient. 
And I think you did a really good podcast on this during the um, pandemic last year as well, just looking at the processing and distribution bottlenecks that we saw and how they resulted in the mass euthanization of hogs or, or various things. So oftentimes when it hits the grocery stores, right, we begin to realize that concentration in our food system isn't always a good thing. It, it can impact the groceries we're able to buy for our families. It it impacts especially communities that are more food insecure. But the rural areas in which our food is grown, they feel those effects all the time, much more intensely, and they've been feeling them for a long time. And what you see in a place like Emmett is that there used to be a whole host of local agribusiness companies where farmers were able to sell their product and work with people in order to get them to various markets. And that just created a lot more resilience than we currently have. It, it created a safety net that they were able to tap into. And it created a sort of diversity and accountability that meant that they couldn't be taken advantage of as easily. Whereas today, you know, if Bayer owns almost all of the germplasm in the world, and they're able to not only sell farmers all their seeds, but tell them how they plant them, when they plant them, and what to spray on them, and sell the spray as well. That creates a system in which there is very little safety, accountability, or ability to diversify if you end up having a bad growing season. You said that there would be ramifications if people... I feel like that's another aspect of that social capital economy, right? Mm. You couldn't cheat your neighbor, not necessarily because you're a, a virtuous person, but because there were serious ramifications for that. It's that right. upside. I, I feel like there's this deep tension in small towns where like what is good is also bad and what is bad is also good. And there are these things that they like struggle with each other because it's so beautiful that like, yeah, if the person at the feedlot is known as a crook, no one's going to work with him or people are going to shun him or he's going to get low price. You know, he's like, that's not going to work. And so you kind of have to be like an upstanding person, but yet it has that other side to it. To me, that's a profound insight yeah. that you, you, you glossed over real quickly because I think <laughs> our language is like, yeah, I see that too. Right. Yeah. That, that accountability, that ability to say, you know, we, as a community, are only going to survive if we treat each other well, you know, and if we have businesses that are behaving charitably to, to the people who work with them and for them. And, and there's just at any local level, you know, this can be true, I think, in an urban environment too. If the owner, if the, you know, locus of power is, you know, at the local level, then people are interacting with that person and are able to give them feedback you know, the more distant that person becomes from their customers, their employees, even from the soil they're working in, the product they're selling, the more opportunity there is for that accountability to be lost and for various forms of exploitation to happen. You know, all that said, and all of that is very important. One note that I have to add is that as Stegner said, this whole area has been, you know, exploited over time by various boom and bust cycles. And one of the other major industries that used to be in Emmett, which we didn't get into just because a book only has so many pages, is uh, Boise Cascade and the paper industry. And if you look at the deforestation of a lot of the West, you know, during the world wars and after, kind of also one of the problems that resulted from the mill that was in Emmett for generations was the environmental impact and the impact on local health in terms of the emissions that were going into the air 
You also see that a, a company with very local roots can have a bad impact, um, especially if once again, it grows to a point where it no longer feels itself accountable to that community. And I think that's something that you saw with some of the companies born in the West was, you know, there was a boom going on, they were profiting from it. They weren't necessarily thinking about the long-term impacts or what it was doing to the employees they had in various places. And, and we're only, you know, in our generation and generations to come beginning to realize the impact that that had on those places, both their environmental health and oftentimes the health of the communities that relied upon them once, once upon a time, not anymore. That mill got pulled out, I think, in the 80s, and a lot of local jobs were lost with it. So Emmett, Idaho was a mill town in addition to a farm town back in the day. So was Brainerd, the paper mill. Okay, my, yeah. my grandfather was a foreman at the paper mill and ran the farm. And uh, my dad, he worked at the mill. That was his first job. So mm. very similar. I know we're getting close to the end. I don't want to end without asking you about uh, Cherry Festival. Fourth of July here in Brainerd is our big thing. And it's like the one day of the year that this place is magical. Um, mm-hmm. Even today, while it's like way diminished from what it used to be, it still is the day when like people just walk down the streets and there's, you know, life in town and talk a little bit about the festival and then talk about how important that was to, to like life and everything else that went on and, and, and building this community and, and why, why do they still do it now? I mean, why do they still have it? <laughs> Cause I don't think it's just inertia, right? Right. Well, so Emmett was an orchard town. So was my town. I mean, the name is Fruitland, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> so back so in descriptive. The day, they were, yeah. Yes. They were both orchard towns and, and that was their main crop. You could say that they were exporting The awesome thing about it was it was also a local crop. So, you know, it was something that was packaged and distributed to various places throughout the United States, but it was also a crop that was locally celebrated, locally sold. There was a cannery in town. And so a lot of the goods from there would would go to the cannery as well for for processing and packing. But a lot of the goodness, I guess you could say, from the cherry trees and other trees stayed in place in a way that really empowered and continued to strengthen the local economy and and culture. So one of my favorite anecdotes in the book is about how this cherry festival came to be right around June is usually when you're going to be harvesting your cherries. And there was this, there was this guy named Shorty Britton who um, really wanted to put together some sort of dance, you know, to celebrate the, the cherries and the cherry harvest. And everyone got so excited about it. There was so much interest that he got nervous and was like, I can't, I can't plan this thing. So he kind of passed it on to one of the local associations who planned it all for him. But it grew from that just dance to celebrate the cherries and the cherry harvest to this, this festival that's now happened for, you know, probably about a hundred years now or getting close to it. And at one point in Emmett's history, you know, you would have thousands of people flocking to Emmett for the cherry festival. And they talk about, you know, the streets on main Main street being packed like five people deep for the parade and for the, for the various activities. The tragic thing that has happened is that a, it's become a lot harder to get those fruits to market. And so, you know, there was not the benefit coming to local farmers to grow 
a lot of those orchard fruits. And so a lot of them have pulled out the trees and replaced them with corn, which, you know, get subsidy payments and the like. But also, oh, back in 2013, there was a huge freeze. And so a lot of the trees that were left that hadn't been, you know, turned into suburbs or turned into corn just died as a result of that. And no one wanted to replace them because there wasn't a profit coming in. So when you look at pictures of Emmett back in the 1940s, 1950s, you just see acres and acres of fruit trees all over the valley. There's about 300 acres left. So they've gone from thousands of acres to about 300, but they still have a cherry festival. And I do think that's interesting. And it's, it's a sign of how small town traditions are very resilient you know, we do things because we've always done them and we keep them up as best as we can. And I think people look forward to it. They love that ability to celebrate something that was done locally, that they have a history and a heritage of doing. But the question I ask in my book is like, well, what if there were only 20 acres of cherries left? Do you still have a, do you still have a festival? What if there are zero acres of cherries left? What do you do then? It's very tragic to think about when you look at the history and the legacy of, of what used to exist in Emmett and see what's happening to its farm economy now, you can kind of see this trajectory really well explained by the Cherry Festival in, in many yeah. ways. Sarah Smarsh's book, Heartland, I read and, and I had her on the podcast as well. And I, I, I struggled with that book. And I'll say this, and, and please push back and, and tell me I'm, I'm wrong. I'm happy to be wrong. But part of it that I think that I struggle with is she was very angry, upset about like the trajectory and 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 what had happened in Kansas and rural Kansas and to the places that she loved. And she drew a, a broader kind of narrative of uh, political exploitation and kind of tied it into kind of this broader, I, I think, national narrative in a way where I, I found it a little bit hard to put myself into her book. Hillbilly Elegy, I did not. Hillbilly Elegy, I'm like, oh my gosh, I, like I've seen this, you know, I've experienced part of this, this. This kind of resonated with me. Your book, it was like every page, I felt like you were talking about something that I could relate to and understand. Are these just different places? So the experience is different. Are you more hopeful maybe and less angry or less bitter? Do you see more potential in future. I'm trying to kind of find out what it is maybe that makes your take on this very similar shared experience less of one of frustration and more one of, I'm not going to say hope, but because I think that's the wrong word, but more like the glass is half full or here's what I see yeah. as the beauty of this. I have to say, I love Sarah's book. I think it's one of the best written books I've ever read. And even where I disagree with her on some things, I agree with her so much more on so many others. One very important difference from her book and mine is that, you know, I grew up pretty comfortably middle class. My dad was a small town accountant and the book kind of talks about rootedness. My family had been there for multiple generations. Her book is very much more about a poor working class family and about a lot of transients born out of necessity because of that class and, and how in modern America, when you're poor, you're often forced into either transients or, or being stuck in a place that's just not healthy to be in. So I think those are two very important differences. And 
to the extent that I am probably able to look with hope on, on the community where I grew up, that's both the nature of the fact that it is growing and it shows these signs of kind of evolving. And also because my family was rooted there for a very long time, I was able to reap some of those benefits that oftentimes have been denied to people who were not able to experience that rootedness. All that said, I I see the same sorts of political and economic exploitation um, in a lot of rural Idaho. And I can see the way that that's impacted both the health of, you know, water, land, soil, and, and various people groups. And I think, you know, if I had not been blessed to grow up in a middle class family, it, it might have been a different book. There might have been a lot more anger, justifiable anger, you know, born out of of some of that. And, and I think it is interesting, like with Hillbilly Elegy and with what J.D. Vance talks about, he's talking about a community that, that's been just severely hollowed out, struggled in so many ways and has not experienced as of yet, at least, that kind of hopeful change of, well, maybe we might grow, maybe we might be able to evolve even our agricultural systems to, to market to this new community of people. So there can be some differences there. I think what's interesting is that Sarah has rooted herself in, in Kansas. And I don't know if you've listened to her podcast, The Homecomers, but it's like even in the midst of the frustration and the anger, there's this determination to show people that you can stick in a place that's struggling and make it better by your presence that I see in her work. And I, I hope to be able to do the same thing with my own home community and with where I live now. But I think that whether it's born out of the good that's in your past or the frustrating, um, both her and I have had this really interesting experience of pressing into the idea of, no, we're, we're going to love the place we grew up, even if it is the middle of nowhere, even if the people there are, you know, nobodies, quote unquote, nobodies, this is a place worth loving. And so, yeah, I, I'm hopeful that whether people come to it from different classes or, or just different emotional feelings about their places, that there's something there for them to make them feel love for the places where they grew up. But can you tell the story about the DEA coming to your grandfather's door? (laughs) This is one of my favorite things I discovered while I was working on my book. And my dad just mentioned it as an afterthought. He's like, oh, did you know that this happened? What? You've got to be kidding me. So, okay. My grandfather once had a bunch of DEA agents knock on his door, Drug Enforcement Administration, because they had aerial footage of his farm that showed that he was growing a crop in the middle of one of his fields that wasn't the same as as the crop, you know, on the outside, on the perimeter of it. And so they suspected he might be growing marijuana. Now, my great-grandfather at this point was probably in his 70s, 80s. He's like the sweetest old Christian man you've ever met. And so I can only imagine the look on his face when he was accused of of growing marijuana, but he just assured the agents that he was not, that actually he had started this habit many years back of growing sweet corn for his family, for his friends, and for members of his local church. But the thing about growing up in rural Idaho is that people know the difference between field corn, which is not generally edible for humans, and sweet corn. And that people had been stopping their cars on the side of the road and helping themselves to his sweet corn crop. Since he was growing it for others, he decided to just set it a little bit inside 
a crop of field corn so that people wouldn't just come and take it. So he wasn't growing marijuana. He was growing sweet corn, which was the corn I ate growing up. We would shuck and harvest it all together and we would freeze it and eat it all through the winter. I love this picture of of him at the door and uh, these agents coming to figure out what he was doing. But it it really was a, a gift crop. Another example of a gift economy, something he was growing literally just to give it away. I love the idea in my mind of the D agents driving away, thinking, you know, we were going to come bust some guy for growing weed and then finding out that actually what he was doing was growing charity food for people in his community. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would like to think that that impacted their heart in some way. This is my last question. And I know we haven't talked about development or anything, but I don't, I'm so interested in what you're doing. I, I feel like I, I had so many questions about that, that I didn't want to even talk about the part that related to, <laughs> to what I'm doing as much. What would you say to 14 year old Stella living in, in Brainerd, Minnesota? And I think I would ask it almost this way. What would you say to your 14 year old self about your place and how you should be looking at it and thinking about your relationship to it? I think it is a lesson of a lifetime to grow in gratitude for what we've been given. But it is good to start that journey as early as you can. And cultivating a habit of thanksgiving is a very Christian idea rooted in in a lot of Christian Catholic teaching. And it is absolutely essential for happiness wherever you live, whether you live in the community where you grew up or, or any place else, having gratitude for, for what you've been given. And um, this book is a form of thanks for me. It is something that I wrote in order to thank the people who raised me, the community that raised me. And I wish that I had begun practicing that gratitude earlier because I do think I was given an incredible gift being able to be raised by the family I was in the area where I was. And so I think I would try and urge that 14 year old me just to not take it for granted, to be grateful for the many, many blessings and to soak it in. Because this book is also kind of a book about grief because I miss the people who've died, who I grew up loving so much, who really made me the person I am today. And one of probably the most difficult things for me, which, you know, once again, isn't really in the book because there's not enough pages, but my grandmother passed away right after I finished college. And um, besides my great grandpa, she's probably, and my parents, she's had the greatest impact on my life and who I want to be. She is, she is the model, you know, that I, I want to follow in my lifetime. So not getting to spend those last five years of her life with her was really hard looking back and missing out on that, missing out on my little, littlest brother growing up. You know, he was 12 when I left and now he's married and has two kids. And so there's some of those things that you don't really think about when you're leaving. But then when you look back, it's like, man, I missed a lot of, a lot of life here. Um, got bits and pieces of it, but, but missed some of the big, big moments. And so I think nostalgia can oftentimes be a bad thing um, when it just becomes sentimental. But I think sometimes when we talk about nostalgia, we're actually talking about grief for, for the things or the people we miss. 
that can be a good grief in, in the way you use it. And for me, you know, this nostalgia, this grief has been pulling me back more to think about what was good and beautiful in that home soil and, and how can we preserve it? How can we make it even better? And how can we be thankful for it and make sure that it doesn't, it doesn't go to waste. So the book is uprooted. Can you say it in your way? Cause I say it like I'm Minnesotan and I feel like I'm, <laughs> I'm butchering. Cause I, I, I know we have a weird way of saying the double O root, root, rooted. rooted. Oh yeah. So, so my so, husband is from St. Croix, Wisconsin. Yeah. So, you know, his, his dialect has already impacted mine as well. <laughs> um, but I, <laughs> I guess I say uprooted. Is yeah, uprooted. More? I'll try to say it more, <laughs> more cosmopolitan. Uprooted, um, <laughs> recovering the legacy of the places we've left behind. The author is Grace Olmstead. The book comes out the day this podcast is released. So if you're listening to this, or the day after, if you're listening to this, you can absolutely go get it. Please do. This is a beautifully written book, and not only is it beautifully written, it it tells a wonderful story. I'm just very blessed to. Uh, to, to have gotten to know you a little bit, Gracie. And I'm, I actually, there, there are a handful of people in this world that I want my daughters to meet and you are one. So we will make that oh, happen someday soon. Bless you. Oh, that would be so fun. You would enjoy them. And, and I think they would enjoy you. So let's make that happen. Yes. Thanks for taking the time. Oh, thank you. I have to tell you, this doesn't yeah. necessarily have to make it on the podcast. Go so ahead. You shouldn't. I had, I think I'd listened to a podcast or something. I had a dream that we visited Strongtown's headquarters in Minnesota and you were trying to talk my husband and I into like moving there. To move it. Yeah. I do that. <laughs> and he started playing basketball with a bunch of guys from the town. He was like, oh, it's awesome. We should totally move here. And I'm like, but we're supposed to move back to Idaho. What are you talking about? <laughs> So I just had to tell you that apparently you gave us an incredible tour uh, and we were very tempted into moving back to Minnesota. That's so. awesome. I do. Yeah. I do put the sales pitch on everybody <laughs> who comes here. So that's probably, maybe that's foreshadowing something. Yes. Well, he grew up in St. Paul area or that's yeah, where yeah. he was born. And then they were in Wisconsin for a long time. So yeah. definitely have some roots there as well. So but. maybe at, you know, getting closer to Idaho, you you do a little stop here. And <laughs> there you go. Slowly go in a yeah. westward direction. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Thank you again so much for reading the book and oh, for being willing to do this. Thank you. I'm really excited to share it with everybody. So thank go, you so much. Go uh, take the, the rest of the five hours you have to to do everything ah, your yes. life wants. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> take care. All right. Bye. See ya. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, the city! The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. 
I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.